Excellent. Good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to have so many uh, uh, friends and guests uh, with us this morning. Uh, really, really warm welcome to you. Great to have uh, Church from Kidlington here this morning as well. Uh, as ever, it's great having you here with us. Um, I have to say that um, in conversations with Keith over the last couple of weeks, he's looked more and more like another body of people in the church, which is people that are facing final exams at the moment. And uh, if you've got finals going on at the moment, then God bless you. Uh, we, I'm looking that way because they're mostly sat over there. He's been praying for you and pray that they will go well. I remember when I was taking my final exams as an undergraduate, I had a moment of panic I was studying biology and I realised that my knowledge of the various forms of placenta that sharks have was limited. I was like, oh no! Um, The question did come up though, so it was just as well that I'd had my little panic. Um, But also, one morning when I was praying um, before going to my exams, because there's nothing like exams to make you pray... Um, I just felt prompted to read an essay I'd written on the fossil record surrounding the evolution of mammal-like reptiles. And you know what? That question came up. Do you know what? I got 80% on that exam. It's really good. So I just want to say, um, if you're facing finals or indeed an interview with a department for education um, and feel like or whatever else is going on in your working week where you feel the need to cram your head with knowledge, um, if you are in a relationship with Jesus, then he knows everything. And he'll talk to you. And that's really good. So anyway, be encouraged. Um, Acts. The Acts of the Apostles. We're looking at the book of Acts. And we've got as far as chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, why don't you open it and let's look together at the continuing story. Um, There's a PowerPoint presentation that will probably appear at some point. um, With a made-up picture of what it didn't look like. What we have is a text that describes what really did happen. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now, a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those who were going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. And then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have. But what I have... I give you, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God... They recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel... Why does this surprise you? 
Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we'd made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of your fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We're witnesses of this. By faith, in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It's Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he'd foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who doesn't listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you, to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. And then... Peter doesn't get to finish his talk. There's no neat conclusion. There's no invitation to people to respond as we found in Acts 2. Because as we'll find in a fortnight's time, when we return to Acts chapter 4, they get interrupted by being arrested. And in a couple of weeks' time, we'll look at how that can happen. And uh, perhaps a little bit about what to do about it as well. But for this morning, we're looking really at this story of... Peter and John together giving away a miracle to this crippled man. Uh, Actually, like Acts chapter 2, which we looked at a few weeks ago, this is a chapter of two halves with a kind of half-time break. In both of those chapters, there's an initial bit where something miraculous happens, something incredible, and then in the second half, there's an explanation given as to the significance of what's taken place, with a little half-time break of everybody standing around and going, whoa, that's amazing, astonishment in response before an explanation comes. In Acts chapter 2, the miracle was the first occasion of people speaking in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. People were amazed, and then Peter explained 
what was going on that time, he managed to get as far as explaining to them what they needed to do, and they responded. This time, the miracle is a miracle of healing. There's the same astonishment as people observe something that is really outside of the framework of their thinking. A difference between these two chapters is that before... In Acts chapter 2, the miracle was something that happened to the followers of Jesus. They were sat together in a room and something happened that they received as a miracle, which then spilled out, but it was something that came to them. What we have in this chapter is something a little bit different. In this chapter, the miracle that's described is given away by them instead. It's a slightly different dynamic. They're able to give something away because of what they've received. And the first slide there just highlighted the fact that they say, what we have, we will give. They've been trained in that by Jesus. In the Gospels, it says how Jesus says to them that this is how the ministry of being an apostle works. I've given you some stuff. You go and give it to other people. Or more accurately to the scriptures, it says, freely you've received, freely give. There's a dynamic of just giving away what you've had. Um, I think we might come back, I might come back more than once to the picture that Adrienne shared with us about a stagnant pond. Uh, that flow of water uh, requires both an inlet, the source of life, and also an outlet, doesn't it? That's what makes it fresh water. And what we see here is a bunch of people, uh, Peter and John particularly, for whom their spiritual life is already having an outlet. There's something fresh and alive in their encounter with God. You know, as a church, and this is hardly unique to us, this is the testimony of the Church of Jesus Christ globally. As a church, it's been a delight over the years to see God performing miracles of healing amongst us. It doesn't mean that there's no one with any kind of ailment amongst us, but we have all kinds of testimonies. I have a few favourites. I think seeing people lifted supernaturally out of depression is cool, really cool. Um, When people have struggled for years and after some prayer, something shifts. That's really cool. Uh, I think seeing a little girl who was deaf in one ear, having that deafness cured, that's cool as well. In one of my favourite instances remains the story of Fred Ingram, who had for 25 years had his pelvis out of place following a car accident and was used to wearing shoes with different (laughs) sized heels to accommodate the deformity that he was left with, who, after being healed, had to change his shoes. And as a former Lord Mayor of the city, went into a meeting of Lord Lieutenants and former mayors and so on, and people said, Fred, what's happened to you? And he's able to say, I've been healed. Praise God. I don't know if he said praise God. He probably didn't, did he? He wouldn't have done. (laughs) But I I mean, that's what rises in my heart. I think, isn't it good these things happen? You know, we're part of a church, the church of Christ, that God pleases to give miracles to us and through us to others. Having said that, we also live in a pretty logical kind of society. Um, There are sometimes reasons to doubt how logical our society is. Some people's behaviour is astonishing. I don't know what was going on with the voting last night on Britain's Got Talent. (laughs) When the dog won, Bev and I looked at each other and we thought, 
we are ashamed of our country. <laughs> Did anybody vote for the dog? So I don't mean to be better. No, I can't, you were not going to put your hand up after I've said that. Um, there we are. Um, so we're not always... Well, maybe there's nothing illogical about voting for a dog. I don't, I don't know. Maybe you liked the girl as well. But actually, as a society, we are reasonably logical. We like to typically understand things before we'll believe them. Most people like to understand things before they'll believe them. But even, even so, in our pretty logical society, uh, most of us are happy to make use of things that we don't understand. And really, obviously, you know, you go to the doctor and he prescribes some drug to you. Most of us really don't mind that we understand it before we take the pill. Uh, There are different levels of understanding that apply to medicine. One level of understanding is, how do I take this drug to do me good? That's one level of understanding. There's another level of understanding, which you hope your doctor has, which is, how and when do I prescribe this drug? How, How does that level of understanding work so that you don't accidentally poison people? And then, But then there's another level of understanding, which... The scientists might have, they might not, actually, but an understanding of how does this drug actually work. Some drugs, we understand how they work. Sometimes we scientists just know that they do work. So that, that level of understanding might or might not exist. But there are different levels of understanding. And as we think about miracles in the book of Acts, I think it's helpful to recognize those different levels of understanding as well. There's one level which says, how do I receive a miracle? How does that work? There's another level, which is, how can I give miracles away, like Peter and John did? How can I be involved with God in his miracle working? There's another level further, which is, so what's the technology and science of all of this? How does all of this really work? And this passage focuses really on the second of those things. It says very little about what the man Needed. It doesn't seem like he did anything other than just live his everyday life. It doesn't tell us anything special about his quality that led him to receive something. It says quite a bit about what Peter and John understood and what they were doing to give it away. It says next to nothing about any kind of technology of miracles, the, the art or science of the, the whole thing. And actually, that's pretty true of the rest of the New Testament. When it comes to people receiving healing, there isn't much of a pattern. If you look at all the different instances, the stories of people being healed, there's very little by way of a pattern that you could say, this is how it happens. This is how you make sure that you receive that kind of gift. Because what it rather says is that miracles are given away by God as free gifts. And the whole nature of a free gift is it really doesn't depend on the person who's receiving it. It's born out of the character and the uh, affluence and the abundance of the person who's giving it. Yeah? So actually, the New Testament doesn't really focus on what you need to be like. It actually tells stories of people who seemed most undeserving of receiving any kind of blessing, still receiving something from God, other people who perhaps were more deserving, if you 
want to think of it in those terms, but it doesn't explain to us some sort of steps that we can go through or some things that we must be like before we can be blessed by God. That's not something you read about a great deal. Equally, it doesn't talk about the science and the technology, the inner workings of it. And I mean, scientists naturally like to try and understand how these things might work. Um, I remember reading a book by John Polkinghorne trying to grapple with the way in which perhaps God's miraculous working occurs at a subatomic level because there's genuine quantum uncertainty and there's a bit of room there for manoeuvre, therefore. Um, I mean, maybe, I don't know. Uh, The scriptures are quiet about that. And again, it makes sense perfectly well because miracles are given away. You know, if you receive uh, a great big gift of, say, money from someone, it doesn't really matter if you understand how they organize their finances. That's not the relevant thing. What's relevant is the relationship that you have and their character in being generous. And so God gives miracles, and uh, it's not a technology, it's about relationship. It's about relationship. God gives miracles to people who talk to him. He gives generously to people that he loves, which, of course, he loves everybody. So the question that we're going to get at this morning, the question that I think this passage can help us with is, how can we participate with God in his miracle working? If you've got other questions this morning, well... Um, I'm sorry, this passage focuses in on what, what was going on with Peter and John, and therefore what can we learn about how we, who follow Jesus, can participate with him in his miracle working. I want to suggest that there's a few different things. <laughs> this is definitely on. Maybe it's not. Could you just click me on, guys? Hey, brilliant. The first thing, there's a few things I want to suggest that are going on here. How can we better participate with God in his wonder-working power. First thing then is this thing about mercy. Now the word mercy doesn't appear in the New International Version that I read from, but where it says that he asked them for money, that should be verses 3 to, it's verses 2 to 3, where it says in verses 2 to 3 that this beggar used to ask for money the, the word there literally means he used to ask for mercy, or he used to ask for mercies to be given to him. The word alms that we have in English is, is actually derived directly from the Greek word. It's, it means not just giving something. It's, the focus isn't on the money. The focus of the word is on the attitude of, would you look at me and would you have mercy and compassion towards me. That's what he was asking for. And that is what he got. So let's think for a moment about this thing about mercy. Mercy is a natural as well as a spiritual response to people who are in need. There are a number of things that can make mercy giving complicated, aren't there? One of those things we can call compassion fatigue. If you're involved in fundraising for a charity, this will be familiar territory for you. People just get fed up of, not fed up, tired 
of being compassionate. And there's a kind of arms race that can go on between different charities to put things in front of us that will try to elicit that response of pity and compassion because we hear so much stuff, don't we? Um, I suspect that for many of us, when we listen to the news, read the newspapers or read the news online, when we see stories of people who are suffering, there's just so much of it that we don't find ourselves able to just continue to feel strongly about all of it. Yeah? Is it just me? No, there's a few. Okay. Um, so one of the things that can happen is we can just get tired of being compassionate. But if we want to participate with God, we somehow need to have that natural and spiritual sense of mercy refreshed in us. We've already heard the word refreshing this morning, and we'll hear it again. God actually wants to come and to refresh our capacity to give. And it's not about having to respond to absolutely everything. Just, I'll offer a word that's really just a word of the experience shared with other people rather than something I can sort of point to, particularly in the scriptures, but so weigh it as you will. But I think one thing that can be really helpful when there's so much news that tugs at our heartstrings, it's great if instead of just pushing it all to one side or trying to embrace it all, we just quickly pray and say, God, is this one that you'd have me connect with? Is this one that you'd have me connect with? There's an openness to having the full response of mercy, but not a drivenness to have to respond to everything as if we ourselves were the saviour of the world. So one thing that can get in the way is compassion fatigue. Another thing that can complicate the whole area of mercy giving is something that psychotherapists call codependency. I don't know how many of you are familiar with codependency as an idea, but it's the idea that we get to a stage where we need to be needed. It actually feels really good to have other people who depend on us. And it is pretty dangerous because there's a desire then to keep people dependent on us because that's what we're enjoying and it's something to watch out for and it's, a, it's like a, a corrupting or polluting desire that actually even whilst mercy is being extended it's actually a fairly self-serving mercy and actually people who are most given to being merciful are most in danger of drifting into that and uh, if you've got stuck in a codependent situation where actually you, you're not in it anymore for any other reason than that you enjoy it, then perhaps that is something that you need to acknowledge and to turn away from. God doesn't do miracles in order to impress people. Jesus faced down that temptation in the wilderness. When the devil came to him and said, you could do these amazing dramatic things and your ministry would take off, And Jesus said, no, no, and again, no. Because it was important that what he did, he did out of compassion for people, not to try to prove a point. God doesn't give miracles in order to boost his own sense of self-confidence or because he needs to be needed. He gives miracles because he loves people. Just wants to bless people really simply. 
Now, I'm looking around for Kate Silk. Hey, let's find a microphone as well. Just thought it would be great at this point, thinking about all of this, just to hear a little bit of Kate's story. I've got a testimony of healing to give. Um, when I was uh, 10 years old, I was uh, very sick, and I was very scared because the doctors didn't really know what was going on. Eventually, they said, oh, well, maybe it's ME or chronic fatigue syndrome, um, but it left me very unwell. Um, my muscles were so weak that I had to use a wheelchair for the duration of the illness, which was 10 or 11 years, and I struggled with um, very simple tasks like um, writing. And one, on one occasion, uh, while I was particularly unwell, God gave me a vision that um, really helped me to get through some of this sickness. And um, in this vision, I'd been running in the light, and all of a sudden, a wall of darkness fell in front of me. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't think I should go backwards, but I was afraid to go into the darkness. And um, Jesus just appeared at my side, and he took my hand, and he actually walked into the darkness with me. But this darkness got very heavy, and we had to get on our hands and our knees. And again, I was a bit apprehensive about this because I didn't want to let go of his hand. But he showed me to take hold of his ankle, and we just continued going forwards. And eventually, we even had to go on our stomachs. The darkness was that heavy. Um, But then we came back out into the light, and I just had a really strong sense of the presence of the throne of God. And um, a little bit uh, later on, um, when I was actually coming up for my final year in university, I happened to be reading a biochemistry textbook, as you do, and I just felt that God said to me, I give you my strength. And um, I should also say that loads and loads of people have been praying for me over the years. And um, I was just like, well, God, I receive your strength. That's exactly what I needed. And over a period of um, a bit less than a year, I made some a very significant improvement, but I still had quite a long way to go. And it came to the end of my degree, and I really felt that God wanted me to do a PhD. I still didn't really know why, but <laughs> I, I felt that's what he wanted me to do. And um, this would have been in a science lab. I was doing science, and science labs just aren't um, made for wheelchairs. There was no way I could have done it in the condition I was in. And I was just like, well, God, you've got to do something here. And it felt to me a bit like the story in the Bible um, where the Israelites have to cross the Jordan in flood. And in this story, they actually have to start walking into the river before um, God parts the waters. I kind of felt like I'd walked into the river and I was up to my neck now. Um, So obviously I was praying quite a lot during that time. But I just got to a point where I felt that actually God had healed me. And it was time to leave the wheelchair at home, so I did. And I started uh, walking and walking. I kept walking. And um, uh, not long afterwards, I noticed the muscles in my legs had grown very significantly. And this was very exciting. And I started doing lots of crazy things, like abseiling down Guy's Tower, which is over 450 feet. And um, uh, at this time as well, I happened to bump into one of my first-year lecturers and um, I was like oh hi Dr Smith and he was like you look very familiar and I explained who I was and he was like when are you in a wheelchair and I was like um, well yes but God has healed me and he was like what which God is this you have to tell me um, so that was very exciting um, and that was all 10 years ago now and I've not had any health problems since and I'm now married and I have a beautiful baby girl who's nine months old so 
just have to praise God. It totally was a miracle, and I'm extremely grateful. Thank you. That's brilliant. Thanks. God does those things simply out of mercy. And if we will walk in mercy as well, then we'll start to hear more and more of those kinds of things. The second thing, if you could click us on, Andrew, is just this thing about Jesus' name that comes out several times in the passage. When Peter reaches out to this disabled man, he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth walk. And then later on, when he starts explaining what's happened, he says, look, it's not about our own power or godliness that made this man walk, but it's in Jesus' name that this complete healing has come to him. It wasn't, he made it abundantly clear. It wasn't that they had some insight into the science of working miracles or anything like that, but they were just doing what they'd seen Jesus do when he was walking the earth with them. They'd seen him healing people. They'd seen him go to the temple and perform healings there that led people to, or the children in particular, to run around shouting God's praise. And they were just doing what they'd seen him do. They were following the pattern of his life. And they just saw themselves not as replacements to him, but as his agents, people who knew Jesus And out of their relationship with Jesus, were then able to do the things that he had been doing. There's a story later in Acts which really clarifies the power of Jesus' name. It's a story that comes from events that took place in the city of Ephesus in what's now modern Turkey. And in chapter 19 and verse 13, it says that there were some some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits. They tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, And I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. And he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. I bet it was. Um, And it's true for us today that uh, those of us who... And many of us here have been involved in praying for people in Jesus' name. There is something particularly about praying for people to be freed from oppressive spiritual powers. That it's particularly in that, just like with this, in the whole of the book of Acts, it was in that kind of context, praying for demons to flee, that the power of Jesus' name is most clear. That's true for us today as well. Um, there are times when we've prayed for people and... You know, when you start to pray in Jesus' name, it's sort of the spiritual activity just goes up several notches. And then we've had people, um, not quite, I've not had anybody try to beat me or anything, but we've had people, when you start praying in Jesus' name, you know, people start uh, growling and cursing and just, I don't know, just before they get set free from things. And there's just, there's just power 
in the name of Jesus. Now, again, this is not slipping back into thinking that Jesus' name is some sort of technology that we can deploy. Aha, I've now found a little bit of the manual, the system for making it work. It's rather that when we pray in Jesus' name, we're reminding ourselves who we are in Christ, and we're reminding ourselves where the gifts of miracles come from. Something that might be helpful is it's not unlike, say, a policewoman, it could be a policeman just as well, who is arresting somebody and is asked to show their warrant card to show that they've got authority to do so. Here's my card. Yes, I can arrest you. Actually, possession of the card or showing the card is not where the power really lies. The power lies in the fact that they've been duly trained, uh, appointed, and have been licensed as a police officer with an abiding warrant of arrest to arrest anyone that they need to at any time. The warrant card is just to be able to show that fact. And it's a little bit like that when we pray in Jesus' name. It's not that there's a sort of magical power attached to Jesus' name. The authority that we have in prayer comes from the fact that once we follow Jesus, we become part of his family. It's like organically, if you like, spiritually connected to him. And with that family membership comes a certain authority. So we, we have it because we're in Christ. But praying in Jesus' name just brings that to the fore. It's a little bit like showing your warrant card and saying, look, this is who we are. This is what authority we have. And it does make a difference. So they also, as well as acting out of mercy, they also prayed in Jesus' name. And then also they talk about the role of faith. Verse 16 says, By faith. In the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him. Again, faith is a word that has been tugged all over the place today to have all kinds of different meanings. Uh, In society, generally, we will talk about people of faith, meaning anyone from any kind of religious background Uh, Or we talk about faith communities, which typically are identified as much by ethnicity as by any statement of belief. And uh, we can also tend to think of faith as believing in something specific. So, I believe that Jesus died for me. I believe that God is going to heal my friend or whatever. We think of those aspects of faith. But the place in the New Testament that talks most about faith is a chapter in the letter to the Hebrews where it defines faith in a few verses and then spends lots of verses talking about what that faith looked like. It explains there, and you can obviously look it up whenever you will, it explains in the first few verses that faith is grounded in belief about God, who he is, but it's expressed in actions, there's this great list of people who were held up as heroes of faith, people that showed faith. And for almost all of them, I think Enoch is the only exception, that is recorded by what they did. So Abraham showed his faith in offering a sacrifice. Noah built an ark. Uh, Moses' parents hid him. Rahab the prostitute welcomed spies. There were things that people did that showed their faith. So maybe I could put it like this. Faith is what's going on in us 
when we respond to the reality of who God is. Does that make sense? Faith is the attitude that animates us when we respond to the reality of who God is. So God says something, or God uh, acts in a certain way, and we recognize it as being him. And faith is that quality that says, yes, I'm going to respond to that and choose to participate in it. Here in this story, the faith is seen in Peter when he stretches out his hand. He knows that Jesus has said to him, Go and do what we've done. You know, go and heal. You've got the power and the authority to do so. And he goes out to do so. But it's when he speaks and then stretches out his hand. That's, if he was listed in Hebrews 11, it would be the heroes of faith. By faith, Peter stretched out his hand to give away a miracle to someone in need, out of mercy and in Jesus' name. I have to say that this... A lifestyle of faith is really cool. It's really enjoyable, actually. Um, one little story of our own as a household, uh, that is, our family for the last week, is um, going back to the school and the um, decision to apply to start a free school and the associated costs. Uh, Bev and I felt led, prompted by the Holy Spirit, that we should give to the fund... Uh, that we needed about £32,000 at Lend Up being, we think, uh, for the cost of this school. We felt God say, just give all of your holiday money. I mean, the money that we've been saving to go on holiday. So, effectively, give away your family holiday and don't have a holiday. (laughs) This is what we felt we should do, so we did that. And um, just this week, um, I think that faith, that was what was working there, has been on it, and we've received a gift to enable us to go away anyway. And... uh, the advantage of all of that is that um, something has been released to help others that wouldn't otherwise have happened, and God has been good to us, and we're all right. Yeah. It's quite exciting, isn't it? Yeah. I tell you what, it's better, it's a lot better than just having saved the money and gone on holiday. Yeah? yeah? There's a life of faith which is expressed in doing things Um, not just what we believe in our heads. And so to summarise, this whole thing about giving away miracles, miracles are not a science, they are gifts from God. They come from him. But we can expect to see more of them when we have compassion towards people. When we act out of mercy, we will see more from God because we're participating in his love and his mercy. When we remember who we are, that we're children of the king, the king of heaven, and we go and we act in Jesus' name. And we'll see more as well if we resolve to trust God and to say yes to him and to the things that he asks us to do. That's the first half of the chapter. I'm going to go through the second half much more straightforwardly. We'll skip quickly over the kind of half-time of people being amazed. I mean, you would be, wouldn't you? They were amazed. Fine. Then Peter starts to explain, have the next slide please, what was going on. He offered a clear explanation to the people that had gathered. He got the opportunity to speak and appoint people in the direction of understanding what was going on. The first thing he did was he drew attention to Jesus. In verses 12 to 17, he quickly deflects attention from themselves and says, it's all about Jesus. And he draws attention to 
what happened to Jesus. He draws attention to what it is that Jesus, who is risen and alive, is doing. And he also draws attention to people's existing reactions. Uh, he names all of what's going on. He says, there was, there's, it's all about Jesus. This is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus is doing. And this is how you've been responding to him. So he lays all of that out really clearly. I remember uh, hearing the um, pattern of life or the pattern of um, behavior that Billy Graham had when he was interviewed. Billy Graham obviously got, did lots of media stuff, lots of interviews, and typically people would want to ask him all kinds of questions. But he resolved that as much as he could without being impolite, he would always answer by talking about Jesus directly, and uh, if, if he possibly could. Find, or, you know, I suppose it's a little bit like politicians, isn't it, who just say they've determined what they're going to say, and they're trying to say it irrespective of what John Humphreys tries to pummel uh, out of them. And he was like that with Jesus. He said, look, at the end of the day, it's all about Jesus. I mean, we can talk about how we organise things. We can talk about all the stuff that we're doing. We can talk about... All, but we want to communicate Jesus. And it makes sense, because... Jesus is the one who's giving these miracles. He is the source. And it's like, you know, the, as the rain comes down from the clouds, and as a result, we have rivers and floods and receding droughts and all of that. We can talk about all of that, but it's come from the clouds. That's where it's come from. And it's easy for our conversation about droughts and so on to be absorbed by conversations about groundwater and underwater aquifers and so on, when the plain fact of the matter is that this drought will be relieved when we have some more clouds. That's the source. That's where it comes from. And this is what um, what Peter and John were doing. They wanted to draw attention to where it all came from and point people there for themselves so that they would know what the source was and could access that source for themselves. So if you want to understand the Christian life, you can look at what Christians do, but you're better off looking at Jesus. If you want people around you to understand your spiritual life, you can talk about what you do, but it's a lot better to talk about Jesus. We don't want to keep the source of life. This is, again, picking up on what Adrienne shared earlier about a pond with an inlet. We don't just want to live... uh, with freshness of life for ourselves. We want other people to understand that there's an inlet that they can have too. Not just for them to receive an overflow of any kind of blessing that we've received, but also to gain access to a source of life for themselves, which won't happen unless people hear. Yeah? So that was the first thing. Secondly, they do quote from the Old Testament. They are... uh, They show that what happened had been predicted by the Jewish scriptures, that Moses had said that there would be another prophet and so on. There's actually a whole other sermon I'm not going to preach here. I'll just sort of flag up what it is. And it's about speaking into people according to their culture. These these were people who believed the Old Testament, what we now call the Old Testament, their scriptures. He explains what's going on, stuff that was outside of the box for them, stuff that was amazing and astonishing to them, he explains with reference to the authority of their culture. And uh, there's, you see that again 
Paul goes to Athens, he explains the resurrected Christ with reference to the idols that he sees in the city. There's something about, uh, I'd like to talk about all of that, but we'll save that for another day. And move on to the last thing here, which is just that they are really clear, Peter is really clear in calling for personal change. In verse 19, it says, repent. Where are we? Uh, Repent then and turn to God. To repent means to change your mind. So he's saying the same thing twice just to make sure they get it. Turn around and turn around. It's no good just to keep going the way that you are. And then verse 26, just before he gets interrupted, he says the whole reason that Jesus came was to turn you, to turn you And here he says, from your wicked ways, to turn each of you from your wicked ways. The word of God doesn't only encourage a sort of evolution in our personal development, little bit, little bit, little bit. But God is also looking for for revolution, for us to turn around from the wrong directions in which we're heading. And Again, there's an example here that set for those of us that want to communicate the blessings of Christ to people around us. There's an example for us here that it's actually okay to be really um, to plead with people and to say, "Change yourself." Don't we don't just have to seek to inspire people here and there and offer little steps, but to say, "Come on, the whole of life can change." It can all be, you can, you can choose to turn around. That's what Peter was doing here. But this morning, I think we'll land this by saying that message rings down through the centuries for us too. And I believe that there's a call for personal change uh, for those who will listen here this morning as well. A call to turn around, to change our minds. A call to turn away from those things that are wrong and to turn towards God. Um, Again, coming back to the picture that Adrienne shared with us, uh, there are some people here who, I'm sure that is true, feel disconnected from the source of life. If you feel disconnected from the source of life, then... Let's just have the final slide just to help. We just need to turn around. Just to turn away from the attempt to make our lives work ourselves. And turn back to God. What does that mean practically? It just means that in our own prayers, in our own thinking, we make a decision. And say, God, I know that I have not sought you in this area. Whatever the specific things are. I want, to, I want now to do this your way. I want to receive your blessing in it and not just do it by myself. Yeah? It's not complicated. It's, um, it's difficult, actually. It's difficult to turn around. It's very simple and it's not complicated, but it's difficult in the sense that uh, it might wound our pride slightly. Um, other people might come to see that we've changed from the course that we were on and had been saying was the right one. So it can be a bit difficult. But the blessings that follow, it's promised here, as 
Peter quotes again something very much that comes from the book of Joel that he quoted in his last sermon. He says, verse 19, Repent, turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. God wants to bless us with fresh life from him. As I was praying ahead of this morning, I had a specific inspiration, if you will, um, a couple of things that I just thought I should share, and maybe they'll help this message to land for a few people. One is I just um, was aware of the way in which, in order to protect ourselves, we can end up living a kind of a shell, with, like with a shell around our lives. I had two films in mind. This might be partly because we watched Puss in Boots yesterday afternoon, and there's a Humpty Dumpty character. I was also thinking about the film About a Boy, where there's a Hugh Grant has this thing, quote, it's John Dunn, isn't it? The thing about no man is an island. But he'd been living an isolated life. There's a kind of self-protected life, which is, in effect, isolated. And um, you might think of yourself... Perhaps you you feel like you've got something of a shell, a protective shell around your ways of handling yourself, but actually it's preventing the life of God from flowing in and out of you. And if that's the case, then I would implore you to submit that this morning in prayer to God and say, break my shell, because he's trustworthy. He's trustworthy. The other thing is I felt there are some people who... Um, have been trying to domesticate God in their thinking, to take God from all of his holy, glorious unpredictableness and, and make him comfortable and fit life. And uh, God doesn't really like that because it's actually a decision not to relate to him as he really is and, in effect, to determine not to really know him. And that's just, it's, it's not what he wants. He wants to know you fully and for you to know him fully. And so I believe that there's a couple of ways there that perhaps God's highlighting that he wants to break us out from self-contained lives. That this flow of life might be stronger uh, for us and through us.